Good morning, church. Great to be in the house of the Lord with you. Well, today, you just heard it in the announcements. This is our last gathering here at this location before we take the next two weeks to go up to Eastern York High School to do Palm Sunday there and our Egg Fest on that Saturday and then Easter Sunday. And let me just say to you, we are going there on mission. Come on, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And here's what I know. Jesus is not limited to building his kingdom by the square footage of our facilities. Come on, the kingdom of God is going to advance, and that is not predicated on us having more space or having another building. And so we're just going to say, okay, Lord, we're going to enlarge the place of our tents. We're going to stretch our cords a little bit. We're going to open up the curtains wider. We're going to drive the stakes deep, and we're going to believe God to reach more people in the next two weeks than we ever have as a church. Anybody got enough faith to just give God some praise in advance for him doing that? We do that. We say, why? Why all the extra effort? Why all of the, the logistical hurdles that we've put in place? And we have put a lot of logistical hurdles in place. I'll be the first to admit it. But why? I'll tell you the why. The reason is because we believe that the Lord is coming soon. That's it. We believe the Lord is coming soon. There's an urgency in our, in our bones that just says we've got to do what we can while we can to reach all we can with the gospel. I, I grew up with that conviction. I, I'm thankful for it too. I grew up in, in a church that believed Jesus was coming soon. And let me just say, because I grew up in a church that believed Jesus was coming soon, that he could come at any moment, I'm not gonna lie to you. I gotta be honest. I had, some, I had some scary moments in my life as a kid. I'm telling you, when somebody gets up with, with, with passion and intensity and, and preaches in a Sunday night service, Jesus could come at any moment. The Bible says he'll come like a thief in the night. Two will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. And you hear all those messages preached, and then you get home from school, and there's two cars in the garage, and nobody's in the house. I'm in the living room. Jesus, <laughs> don't leave me. So listen, Easter Sunday is the greatest day on the Christian calendar. I don't want you to have that scary experience on Easter Sunday. So let me just say again, we won't be here. <laughs> we won't be here. <laughs> Can you imagine you show up Easter Sunday? You're looking good. You're like, oh, house of the Lord. And nobody's here. We'll be at the high school. Okay, we got a picture of the high school. This is where we're going. We'll be up there at the high school. We want you to be with us, and we want you to invite as many people as you can to join us at 720 Cool Creek Road, Wrightsville, Pennsylvania. We're going to go up there. We're going to have a great time. We, we had our outreach team out this last Tuesday. They were passing out flyers to the community. and They had several people that responded. Go, oh, yeah, we heard about this. We're really excited. Oh, it's where, oh, we didn't know it was at the high school. It's at the high school. All of it. Palm Sunday, the Egg Fest, Easter Sunday, it's going to be up there, one service at 10 a.m. Last week, we began this sermon series talking about being sent, and, and what we said is the first people we are sent to starts with you. 
It starts with me. In other words, caring for and cultivating your own spiritual health is important. Because Jesus said when it comes to loving the world, he said you're going to love the neighbor as you love yourself. And so caring for your own soul matters because as long as you're careless about your relationship with God, you're never going to be concerned about anybody else's. That's just the truth of it. So, so it starts, being sent starts with us caring for our own Soul. So let me just, I know this sounds like a commercial, but let me just tell you, we are now entering the last week of our 21 days of breakthrough fasting and prayer. Many of you have been kind of going on that journey with us. It'll end next Saturday as we move into the Palm Sunday celebration, but maybe you haven't. And I want to give a moment right now to just invite you in. Listen, there's, there's nothing uh, mystical or magical about the 21 days. It's just, it's a number that we've chosen out of a text in scripture. But, you know, if you kind of cut the fast short a day, it's not like it disqualifies all your pursuit of the Lord. It's not like that. This isn't New Testament legalism we're imposing on you. So can I invite you over the next seven days to, to be intentional about your seeking you're intentional about your cultivating your relationship with the Lord by participating in fasting with us. Maybe you want to do a partial fast, as some have done, and say, I'm just going to abstain from meats and, and sweet foods, and, and I'm just going to, I'm going to eat a, a strict diet. Or maybe you do what I did last week. You say, I'm going to do a few 24-hour fast. This coming Wednesday is our last Wednesday prayer gathering before Easter. The week uh, following between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we're not having any midweek services. We won't have our uh, Wednesday night prayer gathering. We won't have our kids club. We won't have our Thursday night youth ministry or Royal Rangers. We're going to uh, just put all of our energies into all of the behind the scenes work that needs to happen with our volunteers for the next two weekends. And we're going to have our, our building kind of stripped out of all of our gear to, to go up there. So this Wednesday is our last prayer meeting before before Easter Sunday. I want to encourage you to maybe do what a lot of us have done and say, I'm just going to, on Wednesday, I'm going to do a, a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. fast. Just a sun up to sundown kind of fast. And then we're going to have a break the fast meal here at the church at 6 o'clock, 6 to 6.45 this Wednesday night. And then we're going to seek the Lord together. Why, why are we doing those things? We're doing those things because we want the heart of God. Listen, church, my, my two daughters that are uh, here this morning, they're both taking Spanish this year, and they're learning the language, singing all the silly songs and playing the videos that get stuck in my head. But, but here's, here's the truth of it. You can learn the language, but that doesn't make you Mexican, right? There's, here, this connection, there's a lot of people that are learning the language of Christianity, but they've never actually been born again into a relationship with Christ. And you need to understand, I'm not preaching this because I want you to, to, to learn the language of Christianity. Just say, oh, okay, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to do this. I need to talk to that person. I need to share with this person. No, what we're striving for is that the heart of God would beat inside of our chest. That we would have his heart and that he would have ours and that our life would be lived out in his hands and for his plans. If you're going to fulfill God's purpose for your life, it starts with total surrender to the purpose and plan of God, consecrating your life to him, being sent starts with you. It starts with me. The, the second group we talked about last weekend was that you are sent to your family and your friends. Last weekend, I, I, I stood in these altars after all three services, praying with others for their family and for their friends. And I found myself 
quoting the promise in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, where, you know, the jailer who had Paul and Silas in prison, he realizes all the prisoners have been set free, the Holy Spirit has showed up, and, and all the prison uh, bars have been broken down, and, and the chains have fallen off, and, and he cries out in desperation, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's the promise. Paul says to the jailer in Acts 16, 31, he says, believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. And so last Sunday in the altar time, at the end of the message, I found myself praying that over our families, praying that over our loved ones. Believe in the Lord and you shall be saved, both you and your household. But understand this about that verse. Paul was not saying that if you believe in the Lord, you'll be saved and your household will be saved. God has no grandchildren. Nobody gets grandfathered into this. What he was saying is believing in the Lord makes salvation attainable for you and it makes salvation attainable for your family. But we have to remember this. No one that we love is going to heaven because we love God. It's our responsibility to to share the love of Jesus with them, to share the good news. And for a lot of us, you know, we we might feel like, ah, who am I? Who am I to to tell them they need Jesus? Who am I? I mean, they know me. They've seen my my worst days. They've seen my worst moments. Who am I to tell them? And and I just want to say to all of us today, if you are here and you say, I feel unworthy to share the gospel, here's the good news. You're right. You are unworthy to share the gospel, and so am I. Here's what Paul said about this powerful gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Say, we're just, we're earthen vessels. We're, We're... jars of clay, nothing, nothing fancy or flashy about the vessel. It's about the all-surpassing power of God that we're communicating. And can I just, just bring us back to reality on what this gospel is? It's not about your good deeds or your good works or the credibility of your, your, your life. Sharing the gospel is about one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread. That's what the Gospel is all about. You know, most of the funerals that I do, and I do a lot of funerals, most of them are for the friends and family of this congregation. And that's a sobering reminder that we, we're not promised tomorrow. I had another scare this weekend. I got a, a phone call late at night from Sharon Young that her brother-in-law, Ted Byers, was taken to the hospital. Now, for those of you that know Ted, he's okay. He's already had to have surgery and he's going to have some more, but he, was, he had a heart attack. I've gotten a lot of those middle of the night phone calls. And you feel that, that cold chill kind of run through your body and you're just sobered up to the reality of what really matters most. It's eternity. We got to begin to see our loved ones the way that God sees them, lost or found, alive in Christ or dead in trespasses and sin. We're sent to our family and our friends. The third group that we're sent to, we talked about this last week, we're sent to our neighbors. I know you didn't pick your neighbors. You might have even would rather have different neighbors, but you're sent to your neighbors. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 16. He said, you are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So we have an obligation to, to shine light on those within proximity to us. We have an obligation to reach those within our reach. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That, in the most practical way, that just means preferring them. How you love someone the way, you know, we all prefer ourselves, right? We prefer the best parking spot. We prefer the best seat. You know, we, we, pre- we prefer to be in the front of the line, not the back of the line. So in the most practical way, loving your neighbor is just preferring them above yourself. Can, can I just tell you practically how, how we can live this out, even on a Sunday morning? Giving somebody else the seat you prefer. Like, can you put that picture of the Performing Arts Center back up? This is, this is where we're going. And, and let me just tell you, First-time guests don't want to sit in the front, ever. So because we love our neighbor, none of us are taking the mezzanine, all right? None of us are going to the back of the room to say, we're going to watch you. No, no, no. We lead the way. We, we prefer others. So when we come into the house of the Lord to worship, we're going we're gonna to be the ones that say, you can follow us into God's presence. I'm not getting very many amens on this. Some of you, I feel like you're like, yeah, we'll see. Listen, we'll see. You do you. Listen, I, I went to church in Ohio one time. We were on a family trip, and uh, it was a Sunday, and so I was like, hey, let's, let's just find a local church. So we, we just Googled it, and we found uh, a pretty large Assembly of God church, and I was like, wow, let, let's go check that one out. We got there a little bit late. We were on vacation time. And so we walked in the back doors. And from the far left to the far right, it was packed in the back five rows. You could probably seat 800 people in this room. The back five rows were packed. And then there was like 10 rows that were empty. And then this little dot in the front of the room, which I assumed was the pastor. I'm telling you, we had walked with my family past all those church folks all the way out in front of them. It was, the, it was the worst experience I've ever had walking into a church on a Sunday morning in my life. Let's not do that. Preferring others before yourself says, hey, I'm going to sit close, but it means I'm going to park far. Like, handicap exception. But you understand, like, we, we have a picture of the outside like, there's, there's a lot of areas to park around the Performing Arts Center. The best parking is in the red zone. That's where we want our guests to park. The okay parking is in the yellow zone uh, down by the football field. But then the really unfortunate parking is parking lot number one in the green spot. Where do you think our volunteers are going to show up and park on Easter Sunday? Because we want to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So I'll, I'll park far, I'll sit close. You can follow me to Jesus. Our mission, it begins with those that are closest to us, but then it always pushes us outward, outward, outward focus to the ends of the earth. So let me give you a fourth group that we're called to. We are sent to those that are not like us. In John chapter four, if you have your Bibles there, Jesus breaks down cultural walls, cultural barriers that have been built up around issues of ethnicity, issues of gender. And he broke those walls down when he led his disciples to Samaria to speak to a woman at a well. 
Now, many in this day and age, Jewish men would not even go through Samaria. I mean, literally, if it was the shortest route, they would go around to avoid going through Samaria. And certainly they wouldn't talk with a Samaritan woman, especially a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus takes the disciples into Samaria to sit down at a well and have a conversation with this woman. And years later, when when John recorded his gospel, he understood the assignment. Because in Matthew chapter, or John 4 and verse 4, this is what he said about Jesus. Now he had to go through Samaria. Like it wasn't logistically required Uh, Nobody had commanded him to do it, but John now understands years later that this trip had nothing to do with us being comfortable. It had nothing to do with what was commonplace in society. It was about the gospel. Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he had to share the gospel with this woman. And of all the people, this woman was the first one to hear Jesus declare himself to be the Messiah. And not only did he preach the gospel to her, but she went back and told the town, and he stayed a while, and he shared the gospel with every Samaritan that came out to hear him. He had to go through Samaria. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus broke down other walls that were separating social classes and national allegiance when he answered the request of a Roman centurion, and he healed the man's servant. Go with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We read this verse last week, but I want you to see it again today, and then we're just going to follow the the path of the New Testament church for a few moments. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, last week I shared with you that this verse is the mission of the church, but more than that, it's also the method of the church. This is the outline. It begins with our witness to those closest to us, Jerusalem first, where you live, and then it stretches outward to the ends of the earth. And so Acts 1-8 becomes the table of contents for the rest of the book. It becomes the outline. When you get into Acts chapter 2, the first few verses you see on the day of Pentecost when they were all in one accord, not a car, that just meant they were in unity. They were all together and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. The Bible says that one of the first evidences that that God had, had graced the church with the power of the Holy Spirit was this. They, all the people, heard the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages. There's like 15 languages that are listed, so at least that many different uh, language groups were there hearing the gospel preached in their language. Why? Because God was saying through a miracle right there, through the witness of the Holy Spirit, that this gospel is for the nations. It's for those that don't talk like you. And then you get to Acts chapter 8, and, and Stephen has just been martyred. The first Christian martyr. Stephen was stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says Saul was there approving of their killing of him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We're eight chapters in to a spirit-empowered church, and they haven't even left the city yet. 
Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when I send the Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses where you live. And then it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Now, now, before you go, you need to receive the Spirit. In other words, before verse 8 of go was verse 4. Jesus said in Acts 1-4, wait for the promise of the Father. John baptized in water, but in a few days you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, now we're in Acts 8. They've got the power. They're seeing the miracles. The church is, is growing, and they still haven't left the city. But then it says persecution breaks out and the church is scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And and I just want to say to us who are living a very safe, comfortable Christian life in America today that this is a sobering reminder. And here's the reminder. If commissioning and empowering by the Spirit doesn't get the church moving, then persecution and suffering becomes God's method for advancing his kingdom purpose. And you can look throughout church history and you can see that the trail of the gospel is stained with the blood of the martyrs. If commissioning and empowering doesn't mobilize the church, then persecution and suffering will. God will allow those things to happen to to awaken us out of our complacency because Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church. And I'm telling you, not even the gates of hell nor the apathy of the saints We'll stop it. And it ought, it, ought to, it ought to challenge us. It ought to awaken us out of complacency to the full weight of the Great Commission. And look at what happened in Acts 8. Verse 4 says, now that they were scattered, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then Luke does something. He zooms in to one example. Like the church went everywhere and they preached the gospel everywhere they went. And, and he zooms in on the life of Philip. And I don't think he picked Philip because Philip did anything that was exceptional compared to what everybody else did. I don't think Philip's assignment was unique. I think Luke chose to follow Philip because that's the next step in what God said would happen or Jesus said would happen in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and so Philip goes down to Samaria, and he preaches the gospel to them there. He heals the sick. He casts out devils there. Look at verse 8 in Acts chapter 8. It says, so there was great joy in that city. Well, when I read that this last week, I just stopped and prayed, God, may that be the response to our obedience in Wrightsville. So there was great joy in that city. And then the Holy Spirit actually leads Philip away from the revival, down some dusty desert road that feels like he's going nowhere, only to encounter an Ethiopian eunuch, a man who was traveling down that road. He, he invites him into the chariot, and Philip preaches the gospel to him out of Isaiah 53. The man receives Christ. He gets out. He baptizes him, and then he sends the man on his way as he takes the gospel to North Africa. Then you look in Acts chapter 9, and God speaks to a man named Ananias to go specifically to encourage and minister to a known terrorist named Saul. You talk about being sent to people that are not like you. So Ananias goes, and, he, and when he meets Saul in Acts nine seventeen, he says, Brother Saul. 
knowing who he is and what he's done, he calls him brother. And he said, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me. Jesus sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why he's sending us today to open blinded eyes so that people can receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 10, God gives Peter a vision. He sends him to the house of a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion over the Italian regiment to fuel the spread of the gospel westward. Then God uses Paul, who got saved because of Ananias' obedience in Acts 9, and Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles from Eastern Europe all the way to Asia Minor. And on and on and on, we see the Holy Spirit leading the church outward. And then you get to Acts 15, and all the church leaders have to come together for the first council meeting. They come together for a a council in Jerusalem, and the debate on the floor is this. Who should be allowed to be a part of the church, and who's not allowed? This is like 20 years after Jesus said, I'm going to send the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. They come back like 20 years later, and they're like, I don't really know, I don't really know if this is working out so well. I mean, some of these people that are accepting Jesus, they are not like us. They don't follow our customs. They don't follow our dietary restrictions. They don't sing our songs. They don't pray when we pray. I don't know if this is for them. And so the debate comes to the floor. Who gets to be a part of the church? And some of them were so blinded by nationalism that they were actually putting demands for salvation on people that Jesus never put on them. Almost 20 years after Jesus sent them to the world, the sadder reality that is this. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus sent us to the world, and we're still doing the same thing. And sometimes for us, our legalism looks a little different than theirs did, but the message of it is the same. The message of our legalism is if you act like we act and talk and walk like we walk, then you can come. You can be a part. You can belong. But the gospel just says you belong. Jesus, when he was calling his disciples to follow with him, watched them cast their nets into the water. They weren't fishing with with tackle and lures. They weren't going after a specific species. They were just casting the net. And Jesus saw that and he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, the, the gospel net is a broad net that goes out. And instead of being catchers of fish, we've become experts at being cleaners of fish. And worse, we try to clean fish we haven't caught yet. And if they're clean enough, they can get in the boat. And so rather than casting a gospel net, we, we cast a net that, that looks different. Maybe, maybe it's a net that is a, a legalistic net. Maybe it's a, a, a political net or, or a Pentecostal net or a middle class net or a Caucasian net. But, but we, we cast it with conditions that say if you, if you act like us, if you talk like us, if you look like us, you can belong with us. But the gospel says, just come. Whosoever will may come and drink freely of the waters of life. Come. And it's not because you're good enough and it's not because you fit in, but the gospel qualifies you. 
The gospel qualifies you. Just come and the gospel will make you good. And so after much discussion in that Jerusalem council, Peter stands up and he gives a testimony. In Acts chapter 15, verse eight, he says this, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, like there's evidence. Like I know that they don't act like us. They don't talk like us. They, they certainly don't have the, the, the historical religious pedigree that we have. But my goodness, God accepted them. And the Holy Spirit was given to them the same way that he was given to us. In other words, go back to Acts 2 and look at how he was given to them and say, wow, the same thing happened. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They began to minister. God showed up. And then look at verse 9. He says, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Not by taking a membership class, not by coming under, under religious requirements. He purified their hearts by faith. And then he makes this incredible statement. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Anybody here believe that today? We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. That's the conviction of the church. And so then James, the leader of the church, he makes a resolution in verse 19, and he says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That, that, ought, to be, that ought to be the missional statement of the church. Let's not make it hard in the 21st century for people that are not like us to turn to God. It's, it's too easy for us to sit and, and evaluate a culture that we're 2,000 years removed from, but we have to ask ourselves the harder question, are we doing that? Are we doing that today? Making it hard for people that are different, maybe because of their ethnicity or nationality or their economic status or their political affiliation, are we, are we adding metrics and qualifiers are we making it hard and difficult for people to turn to God in 1963 the reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning it's appalling sadly it's still that way today that on Sunday morning, Christian America, for the most part, gathers in mass with those just like them. As Dr. King said in a Birmingham jail, there were eight white pastors who publicly denounced, denounced him for his methodology instead of rallying around him for his theology as a brother in Christ. And so sitting in that Birmingham jail, he, he responded in an open letter. Many of you have read it. And in that open letter response, Dr. King said this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. 
In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and the principles of a popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. He went on to say, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, be dismissed as irrelevant social clubs with no meaning for the 20th century. And now here we are in the 21st century and we wonder why young people are walking away from faith. Why they're walking away from the church in droves. Because he spoke prophetically. He was right. We must recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church. We must love and share the good news with people that are not like us. That's where this whole thing's headed, by the way. Have you read the back of the book? Revelation 7 says that there around the throne of God were people from every tribe and tongue, every people group, every ethnos, every language group. So in a moment where we'll be more unified than ever before, we'll still be magnifying the diversity of God's creativity. That's not going away. It's gonna be a beautiful display We're sent to those that are not like us. We're sent to those in need. The Bible says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods. He is Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. We have to remember this about the nature of God. Regardless of what your political opinions are about national security or border control, none of those things change the biblical mandate to love and care for those in need. This week, my daughters and I, we, uh, our family, we watched a movie on Netflix called The Swimmers. And uh, it was the story of, of two teenage girls that were fleeing from Syria because they were literally being bombed. And they were evacuating. And it just, watching the story just humanized the refugee crisis for us again. It's so easy to get caught up in political debates about policies and forget God's heart is for people. It's for people. Isaiah 117 says this, learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. We've gotten really good at learning to debate right. I wonder how good we are at learning to do right. We have to recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church. Can I just tell you, that's one of the benefits of fasting. You don't hear much talk about this, but just simply going without food 
allows you the opportunity to stand in solidarity with those who have nothing. In fact, in, in Isaiah chapter 58, the Lord rebukes the people of God because their fasting was just a, a, a religious ceremony. They were just fasting just a fast. And he said, why, why, are you, why are you fasting and not eating, but you're not, you're not feeding the poor? In other words, like you could just literally take the money that you would have spent going out to eat, and since you're not eating, give that money so that somebody else can eat. He was just saying, you, you can just, don't just sacrifice for your own sake, sacrifice for the sake of someone else. That's why on Easter Sunday this year, we've committed that we're going to give the Easter Sunday offering to Convoy of Hope and their One Day to Feed the World project. Now, Easter traditionally is one of the biggest offerings of the year. But Convoy of Hope is oftentimes the first the first on the ground and the last to leave when it comes to the humanitarian crisis in our world. And so for everyone that comes that Sunday, we're going to invite them to, to be a part of it and to say, hey, if you're giving today, we want you to know this is what you're giving to. We're going to help feed those that are poor and in need because we're sent to people in need. And the challenge for us as a church and the challenge of the One Day to Feed the World project is to take one day out of your year's income. One day's pay, two minutes of every working hour in a year and say, I'm going to sacrifice this so that someone else can eat. Someone else, some of the 957 million people that don't have enough food today to lead a healthy, active life. So, for example, if you make $18 an hour, that's a $162 offering that you say on Easter Sunday, I'm going to give one day to feed the world. I want to invite you to participate in that. Maybe even this week, you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast this week. We usually go out to dinner, you know, twice a week, maybe in your family. So, you know, let's take the money that we would have spent at the restaurant twice this week and let's just, let's set it aside so that we can meet the needs of someone. There's, there's so, so many that God has called us to. We gotta start somewhere though. I don't, I don't have time this morning to talk about God's call to children. God's called us to the next generation. There, there's, there's sacrifice involved in that. But we have to be committed. God's called us to our enemies. Aren't you glad I'm out of time to preach on that one today? Woo! He's called us he sent us to the unreached people groups of the world. Did you know there are 3.2 billion people in the world that are classified as unreached? And, and the unreached classification doesn't mean they've never heard the gospel. It means they don't know anyone that's ever heard the gospel. So they have no way right now of being reached. 3.2 billion with a B. And yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24... In verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in, in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. You want to know when Jesus is coming back? That's it. I mean, if there's a warning sign on the doorpost of hell, that's probably what's written on it. Satan fights tooth and nail to keep us from living outward-focused lives and taking the gospels to the nations. Meanwhile, 
Conversely, the Holy Spirit has always been compelling us outward, outward, outward to reach the lost, our family and our friends, our neighbors, those that are not like us, our enemies, the next generation, our children, to reach those that have never been reached. I had, I had coffee this week with a friend of mine, Adam Fogelman. He's a missionary to Africa. We met when we were both youth pastors in North Texas. And Adam went on a Speed the Light fundraiser trip to Africa. A bunch of the youth pastors were going to go there and, and climb count, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for Speed the Light. And because they all had to raise their goal, they kind of said, like, if you lag behind, it's on you because we got to get there. Like, people pledged to support us. We're getting to the top. Well, Adam was, uh, you know, a big guy and maybe wasn't quite in shape. He collapsed on the side of the road. He was dehydrated, literally thought he was going to die. And while he was there, thinking he was going to die, God called him to come back to Africa as a missionary. So that's what he did. He's for over a decade now. Him and his family, they've been raising their daughters the same age as my girls in Africa. They're getting ready to go back to open up a coffee shop in Namibia so they can create disciple-making relationships and launch an urban tribes church. A couple weeks ago, last month, we had the Brickers here, a newlywed couple just married that are getting ready to go to Cambodia to plant a church in a community that doesn't have one. They're, they're partnering with another couple from North Texas, Drew and Haley Sellers. Haley grew up in, in the same church that I was on staff at there. She was good friends with my oldest daughter. Now this young adult and her newlywed husband are going to the other side of the world to start a church. Next month, we've got a, another newlywed couple that's gonna be with us on a Wednesday night. They're, they're getting ready to go to a closed country where, where you're, not, you're not even allowed to come in as a missionary. So they're going under the guise of an aquaponics business so that they can build relationships and lead people to Jesus. I'm so thankful that there are still people that are willing to answer the call of God to go to the ends of the earth. And, and I'm not saying that you're called to that, but I am asking, have you even considered it? Because it's so easy for us to just kind of live our padded, comfortable Christian American life that we forget that the Holy Spirit has thrust us into the harvest field. So maybe for you, it's, it's not the nations that you have to go to. The good thing for you is the nations are coming to us. So we've at least got to be willing to reach those that are not like us. We've at least got to be willing to reach the neighbors. We've at least got to be willing to reach our family and our friends. And so as we end this service today, I want to just invite you to make an altar right where you're sitting and just allow the Holy Spirit to just prompt your heart. Would you bow your head with me and just take a moment? Hopefully this is a moment of consecration for you to just listen. Just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And here's my prayer for you. I, I don't want you to just hear the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you should tell people about Jesus or yes, you should be a witness. I'm praying the Holy Spirit would speak to you with the same clarity that he spoke to Ananias. When the Lord told him, 
I want you to go to this place and talk to this person, and I want you to pray for them. And he went in obedience, and he ministered to Saul, who became the greatest missionary in the history of the church. God, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts with clarity, with specificity. God, would you allow us to wrestle with the will of God for us? Lord, let there be a sincerity in us today that would say as Isaiah did when he was just overcome, overwhelmed by the presence and the glory of God. He said, Lord, here am I. Send me to family, to foreigner, to friend or foe, to neighbors, to nations. God, send me. And Lord, I, I pray as we, as a church, collectively respond. We, we feel sent to do church up at the high school for the next two weekends. God, we just pray as you did faithfully throughout church history. Would you go before us? Would, would you prepare hardened hearts for invitations? Would you show us grace and favor and kindness? God, may the testimony in this city be what it was in Samaria, that the people rejoiced because we walked in obedience. God, we thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Come on, if you love the Lord, just let him know it. Let him know it. Thank you, God, for your word today. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. You look like a bright crowd. Let's go and reach the lost. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today.